Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty, so hello everyone. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have someone finally from outside of the US, someone from Canada, which is obviously dear to my heart because my wife is also from Canada, also from obviously from the more the French side, Montreal, but nonetheless from Canada. And and we have a, someone that is doing a lot for the ecosystem there and, and very much excited to, to really have him on the show today. I think that we will all be able to learn a ton from our guest today. So, Michael Litt, welcome on board today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I guess uh, you know, I, I was I was taking a look really at the uh, you know going through memory lane, you know, on on your end, and I saw that that you did a little bit of the corporate side. I mean, we've all done that. You know, some some of us a little a little less sexier, like for example, myself. I'm a recovering lawyer. But I saw that uh, that you were you know also in corporate. So, how did you get started with the entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think I've always been an entrepreneur in quotes to some degree. When I was in the third grade, uh, my grandfather would uh, go to North Carolina and buy these skids of firecrackers and bring them north of the border. And he'd give me this this massive case of, of firecrackers and I'd take half of them and keep them for myself. I'd take the other half and sell them to my friends at school. Uh, then I got a, a newspaper route, and I realized I could make more money by running multiple routes. So I got multiple routes, and I, I paid kids in the neighborhood to run my routes for me. And so it was kind of a, a natural way of being for me for whatever reason uh, and something that I was exposed to at a very young age. And so the transition from corporate to, to doing this was very natural. And in fact, the only experience I have in corporates was as an intern while I was sitting at the University of Waterloo. Got it. You know, it's a, it's interesting. I also got started with my entrepreneurial book in school, but I got kicked out of school for a few days for for doing too much business. So uh, yeah, we've all been there. So so I see, uh, I see, Michael, that that on your end, your first real stop at at starting a business was with Redwoods Media. So can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about this experience? Yeah, well, actually, before Redwoods Media, uh, I had a a blog where I uh, and you probably wouldn't have seen this from my LinkedIn profile. Uh, where I, I took apart personal electronic devices, so everything from cell phones to media media recording devices to ebook readers, uh, and published the reference designs on the web, and actually sold that uh, asset in escrow uh, many many years ago. Prior to to Redwoods Media, it, it actually funded my way through uh, a good portion of of undergrad. Redwoods Media was um, was kind of shortly thereafter, and, and I was working at a, a large corporate uh, called Cypress Semiconductor in Silicon Valley, and Devin Galloway, really good friend of mine from school, flew out to California to drive back to Waterloo with me. Now, that's about a, a 2,400-mile drive, uh, and you know, th- two young men run out of stuff to talk about really quickly, and so we started talking about starting a business, and one of the things we both had in common through all of our internships, is that the companies we worked for had used video to help explain uh, their product, either in a, a marketing context, a sales context, or a support context. And we had worked with companies to produce these videos. And so we realized we could actually make these videos probably better and at lower cost than these big vendors. And, and so we started a video production company called Redwoods Media. 
Nice, nice. So, so, so I see that uh, you exited this business, and then you went to uh, to launch Bidyard. And uh, I don't know, did I spell it well? Because sometimes uh, with my Spanglish, you know, it gets it gets tough. <laughs> yeah, no, you said it right. But you know, what's interesting is we actually didn't really exit uh, Redwoods Media. The, the we're still the same corporation today. Uh, Redwoods Media was an entity, uh, as was Vidyard. And what we were doing was we were actually funding the development of the Vidyard software platform with the revenue that we were generating from Redwoods Media. And we we actually understood the opportunity for Vidyard because uh, we were helping businesses produce video. And when we did so, they all wanted to know what was the best way of putting that video on their website to get value from it, to understand the ROI. Uh, to understand the brand experience, et cetera. And so we built software to solve that problem and yeah. only stopped making videos when we realized we had a sustainable future on the on the B2B software as a service side of our business. Got it, got it. So so now, you know, really switching gears here and and really diving into Vidyard because Vidyard has been, you know, the venture where you have really made a, a big splash and, and you know, definitely now when I speak with people from Canada, they they point at Vidyard as uh, one of the companies to to follow. So I guess with uh, with Vidyard, what was the uh, you know like looking back like the shareholding team and and that founding team like what what did that look like? Yeah, the founding team was uh, the same as it was for the previous venture. Uh, my co-founder Devin and I, again, great friends from school. Uh, Devin is is what we call an a, a, an engineer raised by accountants, and so he ran a lot of the back office, a lot of the ops side of the business, and I tended to be the talkative one. And the one who was often presenting at pitch competitions, et cetera. And so when we went to Y Combinator uh, in Silicon Valley, Paul Graham said, hey, you're going to be the CTO and Mike, you're going to be the CEO. And so we kind of bifurcated our responsibilities. I focused on on sales and growth. Devin focused on on product and functionality. So that was kind of the core founding team. Um, of course, we brought uh, one of our video producers, a gentleman named Blake Smith, over from Redwoods Media to start producing content for Vidyard. And a really good class, a really awesome classmate of ours um, was early to the table as well as as our first developer and now VP Engineering. So it was a pretty tight team, but uh, we were both engineers. Really cool. I was just going to ask you about Y Combinator. I mean, Y Combinator is actually harder right now than getting into Harvard. So how was that experience for you guys? Yeah, it's funny. They they uh, they told us that same stat when we when we went there. Um, just in terms of the acceptance rate into the program. I think by nature, it's they get a ton of applications. They can only take so many companies. Y Combinator is a phenomenal, a phenomenal place to start a business. You know, we had very little entrepreneurial experience as it related to scaling something. And one of the amazing things that YC does is it it removes all the noise of starting a company. And so, all the stuff that you have to think about around building out employment contracts and you know the process of developing subscription agreements for fundraising. Um, filing tax, all that type of stuff, they operationalize so you could focus on the only thing that matters, which is building something that people love. Right. And and that is, you know, really kind of the the, the tagline paraphrase in a way. Um, and because we were from Canada, you know, we had moved back to Silicon Valley. Again, this was after our drive uh, to start the business and be a part of YC. And being remote from family, friends, et cetera, gave us this unfair advantage in that we were 100% obsessed with building this company. We had no distractions. We had no family obligations. We had no friend obligations. We were literally working on a 24-hour shift. Devin would be working on product through the night. I'd be trying to sell it during the day. 
and I would feed him the feedback I got from customers uh, in the in uh, in the evening when he woke up and started working on the product again. And you know that time was such a special time in, in the journey. Of course, it was terrifying, but right. uh, I learned so much from YC that we still carry into the company culture today. Got it. So you know you typically see on on these TV shows when when people go into plastic surgery, the before and after. So if we had the the before and after of Bidyard, like what was the before and what was the after uh, when coming out of Y Combinator? Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Y Combinator is only a three-month program, uh, but going into Y Combinator, you know, what you what you had was, you know, a couple young runny-nosed gentlemen who, you know, had a dream and a vision to build a product, but were distracted by a lot of different things and, and really didn't have a clear direction. At the end of YC, you know, we'd had a product that for the trailing uh, eight-week period had grown its users and revenue by 10% per week. Uh, we had some amazing, amazing customers and some of big, you know, big YC-related brands. Um, we'd, at the uh, at demo day, we'd already raised about $600,000. Um, about two weeks after demo day, we closed our $1.65 million seed financing. Uh, and, you know, the big difference was we went to YC with with nothing in the bank and the clothes in our back, and we left YC with a business, about 100 customers, uh, real revenue, and over a million and a half dollars in the bank to go and start a company. And, and the, the experience of, of having that happen over, you know, just three months is absolutely incredible. Wow. That's, uh, that's really remarkable. So I guess um, you were talking about fundraising. So I believe this is public, but how, how much have you guys raised so far? Uh, just over 70 million dollars to date. Got it. And obviously there is a uh, multiple rounds that you guys have done. So how has that valuation process uh, matured or, or, or changed from, let's say, since the minute you did your, or the moment you did your fundraising at Y Combinator to for per, perhaps your last evaluation, your last round? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the business is, um, you know, we've raised more than the company was worth, you know, up to our Series B for, for just to give some, some context there. So absolutely, uh, in terms of pricing the company, there's been a there's been a ton of growth. You know, the reality is, is when you do raise money, you're selling a portion of the company, and so so that's the price. You know that that financial investors are willing to pay. But in the end of the day, you know, I, I tell this to a ton of entrepreneurs: a company is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it, and that is either the public market or a strategic acquirer or a private equity firm. And you know, we haven't gone through that process yet. So I almost look at valuations we've received as part of the fundraising process as yeah. as a heuristic and a general benchmark but absolutely not what the uh, the business is truly worth got it got it got it and i guess from a from a process perspective were you like looking at perhaps creating it like making it be competitive so that people would fight to get on your cap table or or how did you look at that yeah you know it's a great question there's there's a lot of, I think, um, fallacies to fundraising. Um, the first one is that you need to develop a pitch deck and run a formal, hey, I'm fundraising process. And to double click on that a little bit, when you meet an investor for the first time, you know, they're plotting in their mind the beginning of a performance versus time chart or graph, right? And the first time you meet them, they're plotting a point at zero. To get them to invest in your business at that point is very, very difficult. They know nothing about you as a person. And in the early days, it's very important to justify the investment. 
they know very little about the business. There might not be that much traction and they actually have no perspective as to how you're growing or how you're developing. But every time you meet that investor, they start plotting a point, ideally further along the time graph and further up on the performance axis, which is the y-axis, obviously. And what we've always done is, is have great conversations with investors and update them and educate them on what we're doing. And inevitably, at some point in that process, well before we need to formally raise, someone comes forward with an offer, a verbal offer, a term sheet, because they want to get into the business. And we've, so on that point, we've never created kind of a formal fundraising deck. Um, now, each round is different, and I'm happy to kind of talk about what matters at each part of the process, but um, by no means has our fundraising been been a very formal, formally executed endeavor. Got it. So did you have like um, like a quarterly update type of email that you would send to the people that you were interested you know, in, or, or how did you manage that? Yeah, so no, we, we actually picked, in each case, five investors that we thought would be a great fit uh, in terms of their existing portfolio, partners that could support us. And I would, I would do regular calls, right? The spray and pray investor update, I think, is valuable, you know, in, in for a lot of companies. We did not take that path, right? I wanted to build deep relationships with a very select crew of uh, potential investors. And very select. I mean, I, you guys have Battery, Bessemer, Omers, Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, pretty impressive. So how, how did you find these investors, Mike? Yeah, so, you know, I would say at first, you know, you, you got to delineate the difference in your fundraising process and your story at each stage. So when you're raising a seed round, you know, largely speaking, you're raising on on the concept of your business. You're raising on smoke and mirrors. There's not enough traction to truly value the business for what you you think or what the market says it's worth. And so, you know, that fundraise is about 100% smoke and mirrors. Your Series A goes to 20% performance, 80% smoke and mirrors. Your B, I think, is 80% performance, 20% smoke and mirrors. Your C, then, is 100% performance, and then 20% smoke and mirrors. And that 20% is where you get you know, that big valuation. And so what we kind of did was we looked at, at each stage of investing, right? At the Series A stage, we said, okay, who can help us most in what we need as a company today? And what we need at the Series A stage is access to talent and support in hiring the right individuals. And so we started talking to a few funds and what we wanted was a Canadian investor that had access to a Canadian talent pool. Because at the Series A stage, you live and die on being able to hire these key executives appropriately. Uh, and so we wanted to work with Omers because they were a Canadian-based fund. They had a Canadian-based talent pool. There's a lot of these Silicon Valley-based funds, you know, they weren't located in a, in a geography that was, that was supportive to us, given that we had come back to Waterloo to scale the business. Yeah. And so, so in that process, you know, Omers was, was, was one of those companies. We had already had a lot of, a lot of investors in our seed round that were advocating for us into those buckets. And so I won't talk about the investors that were at the table that ultimately didn't win the deal, yeah. but you know, it was, it was, it was basically part of that process on the series B, you know, I said, okay, I want someone in Silicon Valley who has operational experience and knows how to scale a business beyond $10 million in ARR. Got it. And so, you know, you look at the list of, of companies, you look at some of the most prolific B2B SaaS investors in the world and Byron Dieter, in my opinion, you know, stands head and shoulders above a lot of other investors. He's personally been through 10 cloud company IPOs. And so from a from the perspective of B2B SaaS, understanding the key unit economics of truly building an efficient and scalable business, 
yeah, he's the best of the best. And so in that process, he was my, my number one target. Uh, and in fact, you know, may have even gotten a better deal than some other investors on the basis of what he could actually do to help us. But, right. you know, similarly on the Series C, because Byron Dieter was now an investor, a lot of people were interested in the deal on the basis that Byron was invested in. So the upside on price we probably got on the C was largely because of his involvement. And so I think what you want to do at every single stage of investing, and don't get too far ahead of your skis, don't think, you know, two stages down the line. If you're a seed stage company, think about your Series A and think about who would be best and sit down with your co-founder, do the research, shortlist five, and then do outreach, get introductions to them, start meeting them and just giving them advice. Again, their job is to make good investments. And so their job is to talk to founders like you. Do not be afraid of putting yourselves in front of them. Right. I love it. I love it. And I guess that, you know, regardless of the stage, uh, Mike, you know, what, what do you think should be those three things that founders should look for in, in a really unbelievable investor? Yeah, the, the number one thing, absolutely, without question, is what I call operational empathy. You know, a business is never, it may look from the outside, like, like the yard is 100% up and to the right, but growth is a step function. It doesn't always go to plan. And what you want is an investor who understands that and understands that you learn as you operate. If you're in a new market, there's going to be stumbling blocks. Investors who operate your business like it's a spreadsheet are not going to have operational empathy and are going to cause you a lot of grief and a lot of pain. So how do you find operational empathy? Look for investors who've either invested in a diverse portfolio of companies that have been through these types of challenges or yeah. better yet, look for an investor that actually has operational experience. And so Byron Dieter, you know, he was the CEO of a business, one of the first cloud companies that sold to IBM. And, uh, and he remembers what it was like to operate and be in my shoes. And so ends up having a, a ton of empathy. So operational empathy is a big one. The next one, you know, just comes down to operational expertise. You want an investor that has a strong portfolio that can provide you benchmarks. And so if right. you want to be the best, fastest growing company, you need to benchmark yourself against those businesses. And a lot of these stats are not publicly available, right? So, you know, things like LTV to CAC ratio, those are there. But things like the concept of an efficiency score, things like productivity per rep, things like the time to ramp a rep productively, there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web that a good yeah. investor can actually compile all this information from his or her portfolio and inject into your business during board meetings. Right. Um, and the third thing, and you know, this could be the most important, is you want to work with somebody that you're personally aligned with that you can have fun with, right? Yeah. We've done board meetings where we've gone, we've gone kart racing afterwards. We've we've done we've gone skiing. We've done all sorts of things which are shared interests yeah. that help develop that that operational empathy and help that investor think about you and support you on this journey. And I think if you nail those three things, you're going to be very successful as an organization in terms of building a productive relationship with that investor. I think that's uh, that's great advice there, Mike. You know, one of the things that, for example, you know, was coming to mind where, when you were mentioning this is the difference with those investors, especially the ones that are uh, on your board, the ones that it feels like you're more like reporting to and telling them, you know, how everything is and asking questions on how everything is rather than the other ones that I, is the ones that I really like, which is the ones that are listening for how can we help? I mean, that's, that's a really big, uh, a big one for me, you know, but, yeah. uh, but I, I just, one quick point. I heard, I heard an amazing thing that I don't do, which I want to implement. So if any of my board members are listening to this, 
heads up, it's coming. Um, a company at the, the very first slide of the board meeting, they have a slide that says board influence revenue and board influence pipeline. And they run a leaderboard of who on the board is influencing the most pipe and the most revenue. And they give a bottle of tequila or a bouquet of flowers or something to uh, the board member that, that represents them the best in the market. And I love that because board members and investors always sell you on the ability to help you find customers, but it doesn't end up being a priority because their job is just to find deals. But if you hold them accountable, they can help hook you up. And holding them accountable in your board meeting, I think, is a great strategy. Got it. And and talking about boards, uh, I guess uh, you know you have quite a bit of experience on on this topic. So what what have you learned from from really putting together a powerful board of directors? What does that look like? Yeah, I think I'm constantly learning. One of the most valuable lessons I've learned is that a productive board meeting is really about the, the prep work. Uh, and developing a template which is easily understood and doesn't change board meeting to board meeting, specific to your business. That then means the investors can easily parse the information and understand what they're looking at. The next one is the, the calls you do with each board member ahead of the meeting are very important. So I do a, a 15 to 20 minute call with each board member where I tell them up front what the red flags were from the quarter. So what were the bad things? What were the good things? And if there's an executive or somebody in the meeting that I want them to kind of lean into on a process or provide some specific guidance to, I'll ask them in that, in that prep call. And so the board members come in, they know what the red flags are, they know what the green flags are, and they know what their job is in the board meeting. So that, that preparation is very important. What I'm moving to now is I provide the resources, the content ahead of time. Because when you think about it, if we do a Q1 board meeting, you know, the board meeting is likely taking place six to eight weeks after the quarter has closed. And so what we do is we send out the materials. And when the board gets together, 10% of the meeting is on those materials. 90% is forward looking strategy, how we're thinking about strategy, why we're thinking about the strategy that way, and getting their expert opinion into the growth and the future of the business. I think it's very easy to fall into this trap of constantly doing updates, but nobody wants to be in a meeting that is historical, that's 90% backwards looking and 10% forwards looking. Uh, and so what I'm, what I'm actually going to start doing is having a board call, which is an hour long, to go through the backwards looking stuff ahead of the meeting. And then in the meeting, we're only talking about the future. Got it. Got it. Well, if you're a board member and you're listening, now you know what's uh, coming your way. So uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's good. So I guess uh, going into the, um, you know, back into the, into the fundraising you know, I, I always tell uh, founders that there's a big difference between, you know, being in a negotiation when there's someone that loses and, and someone that wins and being in a partnership when, you know, when you're shooting for a valuation where there is a true alignment, you know, there's a true partnership. So I guess uh, talking about valuation and, and, and the people that you onboarded, was there like a true alignment on the valuation? And, and, and also, I, I mean, was there anything driving that minimum check for, for you guys that you were shooting for? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think um, absolutely you're never going to level set on, on price, right? And, and in, my, in my opinion, the negotiation begins at no. Uh, and so in that, in that way, you know, if somebody hits you with a price that seems good, you know, they're not hitting you with their best price or their, their final offer, right? There's always room for movement. There's always upside. 
the way I always kind of start a fundraising process is I, I, I think about how much money we want to raise and what we can accomplish with that money. And I build a little bit of a model around that. Now it's very rough because it's almost hard to, to know exactly what you're going to do for the next two, three years when the business is less, you know, less than two, three years old. Yeah. But once you, once you kind of identify that, um, you think about the type of dilution you're willing to take. And then you think about what an effective price is, right? And, and I always look at public market multiples in terms of multiple uh, on top line as well as multiple on revenue. Um, and you can always anticipate that private, private multiples are going to be a little more aggressive, a little bit higher. Uh, and so, you know, in some cases, you know, if we haven't needed to fundraise and someone wants to hit us with a term sheet, so let's say we're having a conversation with an investor and they start getting excited. We're not fundraising for another year, but they want to get into the deal now. They're going to have to pay a price which is close to what it would have been a year from now in order to get that deal done. Right. Right. And so, so generally, that's how the conversation goes. Right. Investor says, Hey, I'm really looking to do this. And I say, Well, here's our projected revenue. So you're going to pay a multiple on that projected revenue when we need to fundraise because otherwise, there's no point in us taking this money now. Otherwise, we, we might as well just wait. Right. And I think that's a very powerful tool that, that helps you optimize price and optimize kind of expectation. Now, when you do raise a round like that, if you don't hit those growth targets, don't hit those revenue targets, you're going to have some uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Um, and so you just have to be prepared to take that risk and to put that target on your back. Because once you get into the Series B and Series C stage, you know, your business could effectively now be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And, you know, when my co-founder and I were sitting in, in, in the bedroom that we started this company in, uh, we never envisioned that, right? We just wanted to solve a problem, for a specific set of customers. And, and staying true to that is so important. And staying true to that is going to help you optimize your price as well. Got it. And, and I mean, you've seen, you've seen a lot. You've seen a lot, eh, Mike, when it comes to financing. So is there anything crazy that you've seen, like off-market demands that perhaps, you know, you can, you know, give some some heads up to, to people to, to be careful or to watch out for those? Yeah. You know what? It's about so much more than the money and the price. Uh, as you probably know from experience, there's many different ways that investors can put money in your business, right? At the very early stages, you've got safes and convertible notes and all sorts of interesting structures there. But later on, when you're doing price rounds, you're dealing with pref shares and pref shares take preference to the equity that you as a founder hold. And some investors are willing to give an aggressive price in exchange for things like participating pref uh, or 2x cap on participating pref. And when your business is growing and everything's going great, you know, you might want to optimize for price because it sets a baseline. Maybe you're taking a secondary offering in that process and you're optimizing for that price. Of course, commons generally get discounted in that in that process, but it is what it is. What happens though is let's say there's a down market and that could be coming, right? We're nine, 10 years into a bull run. Public markets are starting to look iffy. A pullback is, is likely imminent and your business runs out of money and you've got to recapitalize and you have two X participating pref. Now the hurdle for you to make money upon liquidity is that much higher. And if private company multiples compress significantly, you may have just signed yourself up for another five, 10 years of operating before you get back to the price that you you could have been at. So, so in my opinion, never optimize for price over term, 
always yeah. oper- always optimize for terms. And and what I've always told investors is we're not interested in doing something if you want to do some funky stuff like ratchets, et cetera. If if none of this makes sense, you know, Venture Deals by Brad Feld is a great book. It it's still relevant. It goes through a lot of these details. Um, yeah. Make sure you have an advisor as in a founder who's raised money before that can help you think through this stuff, read through your term sheet and help you understand the downside because you could get burned for sure. Got it. And I love that, that you're talking about potential market corrections. You know, the other day I was actually speaking with a friend that, that has raised uh, quite a bit of money uh, in the hundreds of millions. And, and he was a little bit concerned about, you know, the market and, and the timing, because the problem is that when you're on the hyper growth path, you're always one round of financing away from going out of business. So I guess from, from your perspective, uh, Mike, what kind of recommendation would you give to, to those that, that are starting to think about how to prepare for, for the storm or haven't perhaps even thought about preparing for the storm? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of entrepreneurs um, that are kind of new entrepreneurs were probably in school during the last economic recession, which, you know, happened kind of in the fall of 2008. Yeah. Um, when In the fall of 2008, I was working in Silicon Valley at Cypress Semiconductor. And I was on First Street in San Jose, and 20,000 jobs were lost. And I lived in a, in a building that primarily employed people working in tech. And my company asked me not to go into work the day they performed the layoff because they didn't want any full-time employees seeing that the intern was still employed. And so as a student, I was completely, completely sheltered. Now, I realize this, could ha- this is going to happen at some point in my adult life. It's the natural state of... of of macroeconomics. And so if you're a business owner, you know, you have to think about what is going to happen to your market in a pullback. If it's caused by high levels of commercial debt and you're a product that companies are using to invest in growth and they switch from investing in growth to investing in efficiency and sustainability, you might see a lot of churn. You might have to start discounting your customers. If you're burning $2 million a month in search of growth, you better have a path to profitability or scaling that burn rate back significantly relatively quickly when the shoe drops. You best have a war chest, right? If you're looking at raising right now or raising in early 2019 and you're getting down to the short strokes of cash in the bank, do that raise right now because the opportunity is here. The money is there. There's so much money in venture right now that is available. So many companies are getting funded that probably shouldn't be and you got to think about protecting that asset if you ultimately want to. You know, the other path is to think about selling the company now as well, right? There's there's so many different paths that that people can take, yeah. but consolidation is needed in in the market. And so, you know, we're ready for it, and uh, you know, we will embrace it if uh, if it happens. Got it, got it. And that's uh, that's great advice, uh, Mike. And in your case, I mean, you guys have a. Uh, you guys have grown so fast. So, I mean, in just a couple of years, you've gone from managing, you know, a couple of dozen people to how many people do you have now on your team? Uh, we're approaching 300. Wow. So so how has your management style or perhaps the leadership uh, evolved or, or matured from the times where you guys were like 20 to perhaps now? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, in the, in the, I have a product management background. I'm an engineer. Product is in my blood. And, you know, in project, in, in product, especially at the early stage, you're, you're, what you're managing is zeros and ones, right? You're managing code, you're managing functionality, you're getting that in people's hands. As you start to build a business, you shift from managing product um, to managing people. 
And human beings are are highly variable uh, compared to the variables that you use um, to to build software products and highly complex. And so the systems and the frameworks that you use to build product, you have to think about building out into your business. And if you don't have any experience with that, you know, you can absolutely read books, but I highly encourage entrepreneurs who come from the technical world or who've never managed or scaled businesses before and never truly been a CEO to seek out an executive coach, someone who's been there and done that and can help you think about the frameworks for optimizing your, your exec meetings, right? For helping you think through how to build a pull culture versus a push culture. Like this stuff, I think, comes organically to a lot of people up to about 50, if you're lucky, maybe 100 employees. But beyond that, you know, the 101st person that joins your business is expecting a very different experience than the 10th person that joined your business. And you have to be prepared for them. And, you know, to the point where your 10th employee joins, you ask them to bring their laptop from home. They don't have an employment agreement. Maybe you miss a pay period and you retroactively support them and they're willing to deal with it because it's a small business. That 101st employee, they want their T-shirt. They want their computer. They want to be set up because that's their expectation because they're probably coming from a bigger company. And their journey and the lore of their experience starts then. And they don't really care about what happened for the previous 99. So you have to think about these things. And, and I have certainly become a much more effective business leader in this process. But of course, I have a lot to learn. And, and understanding that I don't know what I don't know, I think has yeah. been one of the one of the biggest and most important um, aspects of my personality and my approach to scaling this business. Got it. Got it. That's a, that's that's really great um, advice there for those that are scaling the business. So I guess, Mike, in, in terms of, of the region, I mean, I was speaking the other day, I had on the show Kevin Ryan, and we were talking about how the ecosystem in New York City has been developed. In the past 20 years, there was not even one startup. And I, and I guess now, you know, the same thing is happening there in in Canada. So how, how are you seeing the ecosystem, you know, like uh, maturing in the region? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think Canada's time is now. The government has made a bet on the digital industries, uh, basically what they call technology. Uh, they've put a ton of money into AI research. The Vector Institute in Toronto, um, the University of Waterloo is is spewing out incredible grads. Uh, UW does not take any intellectual property on technology developed as an undergrad, and so you don't have the mess of having an university on your cap table, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, it is truly Canada's time. Uh, and I was talking to an investor that represented a sovereign entity in London, UK, a couple weeks ago, right. and they made the comment, which was, you know, to truly scale an ecosystem, you need talent, you need money, and you need mojo. And it was kind of funny coming from from the UK, and this gentleman kind of kind of acted a little bit like Austin Powers, interestingly enough. And I think Canada has talent and mojo, right? Like we've got founders who are building cool stuff. Balmic Labs just launched their new company or the rebrand called By North. They launched the Focal Smart Glass. It is just around the corner from where we are, and it's the most compelling smart glasses product I've yet to see. The most compelling AR product I've used them. They're absolutely incredible. It's homegrown here. We've got another company that is looking at raising around. I just had a coffee with the founder yesterday. It's going to be somewhere between a five hundred million dollar pre and a and a billion dollar pre. Um, nice. They're just growing like 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 crazy in in a in a market and industry that I I've never expected there'd be opportunity in. And all the money that's coming into these companies is generally coming from outside of Canada. Right. And so the the challenge Canada has is that the wealth hasn't really figured out this industry and our wealth 
in Canada largely comes from commodities trading, right? Oil, gas, natural resources, et cetera. There's a few funds that are starting to do interesting things. One of our board members, Dennis Cavillman, who was the CFO of BlackBerry, has joined up with Patrick Bouchette, who was the CFO of Google, and they've launched a growth fund um, that's kind of co-located between Montreal and Toronto. Really exciting to see that stuff happen. But again, there's not really a ton of competition there for them here. So great place to start a company. If you're raising money, it's likely coming from south of the border, but that's okay. In the end of the day, you know, the money is still green and it's, it's important for Canadians to realize that the vast majority of your market activity is going to happen south of the border and abroad. And being Canadian gives you an unfair advantage to tackling EMEA because culturally we're fairly similar to say London or Dublin as a, as a landing place um, to, to start to expand on those markets. So the time is now it's a, it's a great ecosystem. I'm super supportive of it. I've personally invested in, in uh, over 65 companies now and, um, you know, have been fortunate enough to participate in the upside of some of these businesses. So very excited to see what the next generation brings. Got it. And just out of curiosity, I mean, 65 is, is quite a number. So, you know, based on your experience and when you come across these founders, are there any particular patterns that you have been able to recognize on people that have potential? Yes, absolutely. Um, and again, at the stage that myself, my founder, my co-founder, and, and my good friend Mike Invest, we do it as a, as a group. You know, what we really look for is really, really, really talented product and technical leadership with domain expertise. So if you're building product for a specific market or an ecosystem, ideally you have experience in that world to have real user and product empathy. And then the other side of the business, we look for what we call the, the chip on the shoulder or the warrior instinct. Right. There's so many people that are trying to start companies because it feels like the cool thing to do, but it is very, very difficult. And the highs are high and the lows are even lower. And so we're looking for someone that has this like, and I had this, this point to prove, this chip on the shoulder, this insane motivation that you can just see in their eyes and hear in their voice. And you can validate with their background. And, you know, often these are individuals that, that do not come from, from money. You know, it's the rise of the merchant class. They're, they're really trying to prove themselves and prove this market. Um, and that combined with some domain expertise and knowledge yeah. generally leads to success. Because if you, can, if you can raise a little bit of money and be super obsessed about your market and iterate quickly on product, you're going to find a path to success as long as there's an opportunity, as long as you can move fast enough and afford yourself enough time. And I would say of those 65 companies, over half of them ended up not necessarily doing exactly what they said they were going to do at the pitch, but yeah. that's okay. That's exactly what you look for is iterate to success and understand that that iteration never stops happening. Got it. Got it. And the last question that I wanted to ask you, uh, Mike, is, you know, you, you've been through quite a bit and, uh, you know, the, the experience that you have accumulated is, is remarkable. So I guess going back in time, if, if you could give just one piece of advice to your younger self before you got started with all the entrepreneurial journey, what, what, what would that be? I would seek out experienced leadership much earlier in the process. I would seek to uh, work with CEOs of companies that were a couple stages ahead of me. Um, I would kind of seek their allegiance, their help, their support. I would invest in an executive coach much earlier. And I would just look to accelerate my learning on the basis of, of figuring out what I don't know and what barriers I'm going to run into along the way. 
Um, I think that is is one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give founders is and 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 don't assume that if something's working, it's going to continue working in perpetuity at scale. You're going to hit walls. You're going to hit barriers. Your business is going to have to be redefined and rethought at multiple parts of the process. And the only way to realize that is to talk to other people who've done it as much as possible. Got it. Got it. That's that's great advice. So so Mike, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Twitter is uh, is pretty effective. Generally, uh, generally on there uh, a few times throughout the day. My Twitter handle is just Michael Lit. Um, another way is to go download, uh, go video, send me a video message. My email is Michael at video.com. Uh, it's one of our products. It's a great way of, uh, of getting my attention. I love seeing people use it effectively. Otherwise, I'm uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, and you can find me under Michael Lit. Amazing. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Alejandro. Best of luck. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.